the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today we're going to talk with June Hunt. She is the author of Bullying. Well, no, she's not the author of Bullying, but she's written a little book on the subject, Bully No More. It's uh, published by Hope for the Heart, which, of course, is the ministry she's been overseeing for many, many, many years. I think I mentioned earlier this week that I had the opportunity to hang with June Hunt uh, just a couple of months ago at the Restored Hope Network conference. I'm looking forward to reconnecting with her and talking about what I think is a very important book to help parents better understand the subject and how to help their sons and daughters who might find themselves in a similar situation. Sadly, it's not just young people who are engaged in bullying or being bullied. There are lots of adults who find themselves in similar situations, and uh, the book will be helpful uh, for them as well. She'll be joining us later this hour. First, we'll take a look at some of the day's headlines as part of the House formal impeachment inquiry. A top official at the National Security Council testified that he listened to the July phone call between President Trump and Ukrainian President Zelensky in the Situation Room and reported his concerns to NSC's lead counsel. In prepared remarks obtained by media, Alexander Vindman, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, a director of National Security Affairs, wrote, I did not think it was proper to demand that a foreign government investigate a U.S. citizen, and I was worried about the implications for the U.S. government's support of Ukraine. He added, following the call, I reported my concerns to NSC's lead counsel, a reference to the top NSC lawyer, John Eisenberg. Well, the Democrats' inquiry was opened after a whistleblower complaint alleged that Mr. Mr. Trump, during the July phone call, pushed Zelensky to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter as military aid to the country was being withheld. The White House and the president's allies have maintained there was no such quid pro quo. Meanwhile, more questions are emerging about Hunter Biden's business dealings. And by the way, later in this uh, the program, we'll talk about uh, what the uh, Democrats have introduced by way of a impeachment resolution. It's not exactly the um, the resolution that ends uh, with the Judiciary Committee taking up the matter, but it does clarify at least the ground rules. We'll talk about that later. Vindman's testimony comes as House lawmakers are preparing a a vote on formal impeachment later this week. We're now told that's most likely on Thursday. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said on Monday the House will vote on a resolution to formalize and establish the perimeters of the Trump impeachment inquiry. In a letter sent to Democratic House lawmakers, Pelosi said the resolution affirms the ongoing existing investigation establishes the procedure for future investigative steps and to potentially prevent the Trump administration from withholding documents and preventing witnesses from testifying. It does not, however, as has been the case in previous impeachment uh, investigations, provide the opportunity for counsel for the president and full disclosure to both House and Senate. It's not a joint um, operation, as we've seen in the three other, well, nearly, I say two and a half, because uh, 
Nixon resigned, but in the other efforts where impeachment was, in fact, the case. It's been learned that the vote will take place Thursday on the House floor. It's not an actual article of impeachment. It falls short of that, but rather a resolution that sets process ground rules. This is sort of after the dog's already out of the pen, but nonetheless, it puts in writing what's being done. Republicans hit back on Monday at the uh, Speaker over the planned vote with South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which would play a role in a Senate impeachment trial, saying a vote now is a bit like unringing a bell as House Democrats have selectively leaked information in order to damage President Trump. For weeks. Well, the U.S. raid that led to the death of Islamic State leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi uh, was months in the making and involved significant intelligence from Kurdish allies in Syria, including a rare informant at the heart of the ISIS uh, organization who was in the compound at the time of the raid. Uh, General Abdi, the Syrian Democratic Forces commander, told news outlets how they tracked al-Baghdadi after the caliphate fell. The general said the informant told us that he moved west to Idlib and to a specific house. We told American intelligence on May 15th and together set up a secret cell which had three Americans in it. The SDF informant uh, told them about the tunnels under the compound, how many people were in, or rather with al-Baghdadi, and that he was planning to move, having been at that location for months. Well, that's when the U.S. decided to strike, and strike they did. Well, strengthening and shifting winds on Tuesday are expected to re-energize the Kincaid Fire, placing red flag weather warnings into effect for most of San Francisco Bay Area as Northern California's sweeping wine country battles with now the state's largest fire this year. The fire that began late Wednesday near Geyersville, or Geyersville California, has surged through Sonoma County, forcing about 185,000 people to evacuate their homes, the San Francisco Chronicle is reporting. Firefighters braced for high winds to return, with gusts expected to reach 60 miles per hour. And a federal judge in Kentucky on Monday partially reopened Covington Catholic High School student Nicholas Sandman's $250 million defamation suit against the Washington Post, which the same judge dismissed in July. Well, the new ruling by District Judge William Bertelsman is based on an amended complaint filed by Sandman's legal team. And President Trump tweeted a photo of the U.S. military dog injured in the raid that claimed al-Baghdadi's life. The hero dog, as he's now being referred to, whose name is still a mystery, was unveiled in a tweet reading, We have declassified a picture of the wonderful dog, name not declassified, that did such a great job in capturing and killing the leader of ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. The photo was released hours after Army General Mark Miley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, told reporters during a briefing on Monday that the dog performed a tremendous service and was slightly wounded, but is now fully recovering. Oregon Representative Greg Walden, the top Republican on the powerful House panel, says that he's going to retire. What's next? Well, all eyes will be on that race in Oregon. The U.S. Senate has rejected Rand Paul's latest effort to cut spending and confiscating the wealth of all billionaires won't pay for three average um, years of Medicare for all, which actually isn't Medicare, but that's another subject for another day. The U.S. will extend temporary protections for El Salvadorians for at least another year. And Britain looks set for an early election and an attempt to break 
the Brexit deadline again. MIT engineers have developed a new way of to remove carbon dioxide from the air. And on this day in history, 1929, it was Black Tuesday. I refer as an African-American to refer to it as Bleak Tuesday. Descends upon the New York Stock Exchange. Prices collapse amid panic selling and thousands of investors are wiped out as America's Great Depression begins. 1901, President William McKinley's assassin is electrocuted. And in 1956, on this day, the Huntley-Brinkley Report premieres on NBC's nightly television newscast. There's more, but we need to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 18 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with June Hunt. She is the author of Bullying No More. Uh, June Hunt is a biblical counselor. She's an award-winning radio program host. Hope for the Heart is uh, heard on more than 900 radio outlets around the world. And for more than 25 years, she's counseled people, offering them hope for today's problems. Her latest little book, I guess it's a book rather than a booklet, Bullying uh, bully no more. She'll join us later in the next hour. Hey, taking a look at uh, stuff that happened on this day in history some time ago. Back in 1987, following the confirmation defeat of Robert H. Bork to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court, President Ronald Reagan announced his choice, Douglas H. Ginsburg, a nomination that would fall apart over revelations of Ginsburg's previous marijuana use. That was 1987. Back in 1988, on this day, Senator John Glenn, at age 77, soars back into space aboard the space rather aboard the shuttle Discovery, retracing the trail he'd blazed for America's astronauts 36 years earlier. At age 77, and on this day in 2012, Superstorm Sandy slams ashore in New Jersey, slowly marching inland, devastating coastal communities, causing widespread power outages. The storm, its aftermath, would be blamed for at least 182 deaths here in. The United States. Well, the California National Guard has activated more than 700 service members for support as the state continues to fight wildfires that have spread across more than 66,000 acres in Northern California alone, destroying dozens of homes, forcing residents to evacuate. The soldiers and airmen were activated in the past 24 hours in response to the operations throughout the state, including in Northern California, where crews there continue to battle the almost week-old Kincaid fire in wine country. More than 100 103 square miles have burned in Sonoma. In the height of past wildfire activations, we've had thousands of soldiers and airmen activated. The National Guard spokesman, Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Shimora, said um, on Tuesday, we've, uh, we're calling in uh, uh, all that we've needed for what we're doing. He said 700 members is a good amount of uh, soldiers and airmen. Uh, should be good number, but nonetheless, I'm quoting, to support activities in northern and southern California. The majority of the activated service members have been deployed to northern California, where military police are helping provide traffic control assistance to those residents in Santa Rosa, uh, in that area where they've been told to evacuate. The fires there began Wednesday. They intensified on Monday, destroying 57 homes, damaging at least a dozen dozen others, with 90,000 additional homes and buildings considered threatened by that blaze. About 156,000 people were told to evacuate, with with, uh, many others seeking shelter due to power outages. Well, despite coming into office with a budget surplus of around $36 billion and enjoying favorable approval ratings, California Governor Gavin Newsom's first year in office has been anything but, well, tranquil. Newsom spent the previous eight years as lieutenant governor to Democrat Jerry Brown 
has in the past uh, 10 months of his term had to take the helm in dealing with a slew of uh, pressing issues from a massive homelessness crisis, rising housing costs to sky high gas prices, decaying roads and, of course, now. There's the fire. Now with the state entering its traditional fire season, he's grappling with massive wildfires everywhere from Los Angeles to the state's storied wine region, while also fighting to limit blackouts by PG&E, the state's largest utility provider, in what's uh, posing a complex and urgent challenge for his administration. He says the next 72 hours will be challenging. That's an understatement in a press conference over the weekend. I could sugarcoat it, but I will not. Well, it's essentially impossible to do so under these circumstances. Well, yesterday, fire crews across the state were battling a blaze in the star-studded hills around Los Angeles, forcing thousands of people to flee in the middle of the night, destroying several large homes. Up north in the Sonoma wine country, firefighters were trying to get a handle on an almost week-old blaze that doubled in just a day at, um, to at least 103 square miles and much, much more going on. Well, Newsom has uh, his hands full for the remainder of his tenure. Meanwhile, the Trump administration has asked the Supreme Court to quash California's migrant sanctuary law, which broadly prohibits state and local law enforcement from cooperating with federal immigration authorities. The dispute over the California Values Act, or Senate Bill 54, is ideologically scrambled, featuring Uh, Donald Trump's uh, conservative administration arguing for strong federal power against California liberals making a state right defense. Well, the uh, federal government uh, has uh, plenary and exclusive power over immigration, naturalization and deportation. That's what the government's petition to the high court says. The supremacy of the national power in this area is made clear by the Constitution, was pointed out by the authors of the Federalist in 1787, and has been given continuous recognition by this court. Well, the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the law in April. Three provisions of the Senate bill are at risk in this case. The law bars state officials from sharing information about a person's release from custody with immigration agents, sharing personal information like physical descriptions or employment history, and transferring individuals to immigration authorities without a court warrant. The law does not apply to certain violent criminals. Well, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement issued about 58,000 immigration detainers uh, in California in fiscal year 2019 without California. California's cooperation, federal immigration agents must uh, stake out state jails, await the release of non-citizens, then make public arrests. Some migrants uh, evade federal custody altogether. The practical consequence of the obstruction in California isn't theoretical. As a result of the Senate Bill 54, criminal aliens have evaded the detention and removal that Congress prescribed and have instead returned to the civilian population, where they're disproportionately likely to commit additional crimes, according to the government petition. Well, the Trump administration is relying on a liberal Supreme Court decision to make its case in keeping with the ideological role reversals that permeate the dispute. In Arizona versus U.S., a left-leaning five-judge majority invalidated much of an Arizona law that involved state officials with immigration enforcement Arizona says its law merely supplemented federal immigration rules. The high court struck much of that down anyway, saying federal immigration rules take precedence over or preempt state rules. If the states can't augment um, immigration enforcement, it follows that they can't interfere with it either, the administration argues. The conflict is all the more evident here because Senate Bill 54 does not purport to pursue the same aim as federal law, but instead is... Um, uh, concededly aimed at obstructing federal immigration enforcement, the government petition 
reads, well, it cannot uh, be that conflict preemption bars a state from adopting its own policies to enhance federal immigration enforcement, yet permits a state to obstruct federal enforcement, the filing adds. While a three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the California law using a state's rights doctrine under the Tenth Amendment anti-commandeering rule, the federal government can't enlist the state to enforce federal policies. That means the administration can't require California's cooperation with immigration enforcement, according to the panel. Well, Senate Bill 54 may well frustrate the federal government's immigration enforcement efforts, Judge Milan uh, Smith wrote in the unanimous uh, opinion. However, whatever the wisdom of the underlying policy adopted by California, that fr- uh, frustration is permissible because California has the right, pursuant to the anti-commandeering rule, to refrain from assisting with federal efforts. Well, President George W. Bush, he appointed Smith to the bench. The other two, Judge Paul Watford and Andrew Hurwitz are Democrat appointees. The Supreme Court uh, could hear the California case this term. California may respond to the government petition by the 22nd of next month. An administration rebuttal would likely follow in early December. That leaves enough time for the court to take the case before it finalizes its docket in January. It'll be interesting to see because it will have an impact not only on the state of California and that Pacific specific law, but it may also have the potential to have an impact on other sanctuary policies that are held by states as well as municipalities. So we'll certainly continue to watch what happens uh, in this uh, ongoing battle and uh, whether or not the Supreme Court decides to take the whole thing up. Well, the top Republicans on the House committee leading the impeachment inquiry into President Trump's um, uh, misdeeds uh, from the Democrat side, misunderstanding from the Republican side, blasted the investigation as illegitimate and a sham on Tuesday, even after Democrats scheduled a vote to formalize the proceedings. Now, it's not formalized in the sense that we've seen historically, but it is at least a clarification on the parameters, signaling uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi's decision to hold that vote won't assuage the GOP process complaints. House Intelligence Committee Ranking Member Devin Nunez, Oversight Committee Ranking Member Jim Jordan, and Foreign Affairs Committee Ranking Member Michael McCall penned a letter to Representative James McGovern, who's the chairman of the House Rules Committee, who announced his panel would take up an impeachment procedure resolution on Wednesday to ensure transparency and provide a clear path forward. Well, Nunez, Jordan, and McCall accused McGovern the Democrat from Massachusetts, of not giving enough time for Republican members to review the resolution ahead of the vote and continue to blast the inquiry as a whole, saying, under House rules, you championed at the beginning of this Congress, major legislation is required to be posted 72 hours in advance of a vote, they wrote. Yet here, on the gravest and most solemn work the House can do, you are forcing the House to consider a resolution with text that is still not available two days before the vote. Without text, we know nothing about the Democrats' intended impeachment process. Your website describes the resolution as directing certain committees to continue their ongoing investigation. Chairman Schiff does not need a resolution to continue leaking selective facts from his basement bunker, end quote. They added, we can only assume, therefore, that this resolution is necessary to allow Democrats to subvert the ordinary legislative process. Well, the fiery states, uh, statement from them and other Republicans indicates the looming vote will not ease their concerns about the process being used to investigate the president over allegations he improperly sought a politically related investigation from Ukraine and may have used 
used U.S. military aid as leverage, which the president has denied. Republicans have for weeks complained about the closed-door interviews being conducted as part of the probe and the lack of a formal House vote challenging the legitimacy of the current framework for impeachment proceedings in the absence of one. So, again, the vote is expected on Tuesday. The rules, excuse me, on Thursday, the Rules Committee will vote on Wednesday, and we'll see what uh, happens from that point forward. Again, it's not a formal impeachment uh, resolution, but it does at least provide some parameters which are already in place. So it is a bit redundant. But we'll see what uh, what it actually says and what happens next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with June Hunt, author of the book, Bullying, Bully No More. It's published by Hope for the Heart. She'll join us right after this. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, so often it begins with well teasing and put-downs, mocking or insults. Then it becomes progressively worse with threats and intimidation. I'm talking about bullying. It's been on the rise in schools, and now more than one in five school children report being bullied frequently. Well, while age isn't necessarily a factor, bosses and spouses can be bullies, too. It typically begins at a young age and carries on through life unless there's an intervention. According to June Hunt, my next guest, the author of Bullying, Bully No More, there are four components of bullying. A bully rarely stops his or her behavior. Instead, the continual emotional blows inflict greater emotional pain on the victim. Well, she identifies the primary traits of bullies in a checklist that looks at the the, uh, mental, emotional and behavioral as well as social components. Uh, Whatever the type, the taunting is always destructive and demoralizing. Victims of bullying often don't say anything, but the shame and self-blame they feel often carries over into adult relationships. It's important to understand it and to know what to do about it. Well, June Hunt is a biblical counselor whose award-winning radio program, Hope for the Heart, is heard on more than 1,000 radio outlets around the world. For more than 25 years, she's counseled people, offering them hope for today's problems. June has helped many people with emotional, relational, and spiritual problems experience God's love through biblical hope and practical help. And as I mentioned earlier, I had the opportunity to spend a little time with June Hunt and get to know her this summer, and I'm just delighted to welcome you, uh, June, to the program here today. It's a, a delight to talk with you. It's a joy to be with you again. Thank you, Georgine. Well, my temptation is to just uh, chat, you know, a couple of girlfriends, but I guess we really do want to to share with what uh, your little book has a lot to say on the subject of bullying. Maybe we should just begin by talking about what is bullying and what's not considered bullying, although unpleasant. Yeah, well, it's a great question because many people think they know what bullying is, and that's just somebody in the backyard of a a house or or at a school hitting somebody else. Uh, Bullying instead is a deliberate, hostile, physical, emotional, it could be even verbal assault, involving an imbalance of power, but it's with the intent to hurt or to harm. So basically, the key here is bullying is not a one-time act, but rather a repeated, persistent harassment it could be by one person or it could be by a group. But the key is persistent, pervasive, and uh, unfortunately, it does not stop without intervention. 
I think for a lot of people, they just assume, oh, this is just a childhood phase. It will pass. If you're being bullied, just don't pay attention or, or don't say anything and it will eventually end or for the bully uh, that they'll grow out of it. How seriously should we take bullying? And I know there are certainly degrees, um, but but should it be taken seriously in most cases? Think of the new word in our English dictionaries, bully side. Bully side is a term used to describe the tragic suicides of those who have been bullied. Mm. So, yes, you are 100% right. You take bullying seriously because those who are victims of bully side, they become emotionally distraught over the attacks of those who bully them. They lose hope and are unable to make um, life-preserving decisions, and they don't see any other way to stop except they just want the pain to stop. And so they end their lives. And yes, it does end the bullying, but this is not God's plan or purpose for anyone to experience. And what a, a tragedy. Are there different types of bullying that we should be aware of? You know, many people just assume it is kids. Um, but I, of course, yes, there's school bullying. Um, but there is home bullying. On occasion, I've had somebody say, you know, my father was a bully. And we don't typically think of a father or a mother or an older sibling. But basically, if it is targeting one person, a husband can target a wife. And she is the repeated victim. Um, you know, whether it is anyone in the family, the point is, is it continual and systematic? Is it with the intent to, to hurt? And that doesn't mean the assumption would be always seen uh, physically, like with bruises and uh, slashes. But there's workplace bullying. An employer uh, could be incredibly intimidating to employees or uh, disabled. Uh, you know, this is one of the important things to understand. When I said there's an imbalance of power, there are times when bullies, they, they look for people who will uh, be their victims. And so they typically don't pick somebody who's very, very strong. They're going to pick somebody that they feel they can feel significant over. And there are three inner needs for, that we all have, for love, significance, and security. Well, if a bully says, well, this is my way to feel significant, and may not use exactly those words, but they're going to perhaps pick somebody who is disabled. Um, basically, uh, it's committed by anyone who targets those with mental or psychological or physical disabilities. Likewise, same would be true with elder bullying, but somebody who's older, um, and those who are could be, let's say, there's a caregiver who is a bully. Um, the issue is they they would pick out nursing homes or retirement facilities. And I'm going to want, mention one other. There's spiritual bullying. There are those in spiritual leadership, religious leaders, who misuse mm. their position to target people under their authority. I know that most of us have sympathy for and empathy for those who have been bullied, but let's talk about the bullies. What characterizes a bully? And is there a a singular source that is generated in the life of an individual that manifests itself as a a bully uh, and lording oneself over others? Mm 
Well, I'm going to be very candid. I have a friend who was a, uh, a, a principal of a middle school, and we were talking about this because I was really talking about verbal and emotional abuse. I was teaching this and d- developing material. And, and my friend came to me and said, June, this might be a helpful test for you. Well, I took a test of 20 questions, and I probably was right on maybe most, maybe some of them, but I was wrong on what I thought would be the correct answer for what would be characteristics of bullies. For example, um, it's like I assumed that those who were bullies would later feel bad about it, feel bad about their bullying. They don't. They justify it. Now, there's a key A key thing I want to mention here, every bully has been bullied. Let me repeat it. Every bully has been bullied. And the concept is either you give in, you become afraid, you're bullied and bullied and bullied again, or no, I will become the bully. And this is why those who bully others don't feel bad. So basically, if you've asked about what what it looks like, They think their behavior is justified and can be quite convincing. They think it's okay to say mean things, derogatory words, your clothes are ugly. They believe it's okay to be mean to their victims because their victims deserve it. That's their mindset. They believe they are more important than others and they exude arrogance, pridefulness, and believe others owe them. Um, And therefore, emotionally, they feel the need to be in control and dominate others. And this is something that many people uh, would not understand, that they don't feel empathy. You would think they would because you do, Georgine. You feel empathy. Uh, You would have compassion, but they don't. They feel entitled to get their way. Therefore, they have no guilt over their wrongs because being vengeful is the way to go. They blame others. They possess strong personalities. And they really try to get others to join them. In other words, they like to become ringleaders. Some do. Um, they initiate harassing phone calls, etc. Uh, just you know, emails, texts. And by the way, with our age of social media, this can be horrible. Yeah. It could be called cyberbullying. And that's one of the most tragic things when others fall under the weight of their condemnation. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation with June Hunt. She's the author of many very helpful books. This one titled Bullying, Bully No More. It's a small book, but it's packed with all kinds of very useful information, understanding the phenomenon and what to do about it. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. And we're back. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Joan Hunt, the title of her book, Bullying, Bully No More. It's uh, published by Aspire Press, and it's uh, full of all kinds of very helpful uh, information and understanding the subject of bullying. Now, in describing um, a bully, the fact that they lack empathy, they tend not to regret the bullying they have done. Is there any hope of transforming someone who has been engaged in bullying, whether we're talking about a child or an adult? Hmm. You know, that was one of the interesting things that I'm so glad you focused on. What about the bully? Because most people go to the victim. They're mm-hmm. trying to comfort the victim. And um, 
I, I do want to make sure I say this. In bullying, there's the bully, the bullied, and the bystander. And the bystander is the one that has the most power. Now, we can get back to that, but I want to answer your question in a way that I, I kept thinking with this little book that I wrote. Um, I, I thought, but how do we deal with the bully? Because I, I had a hard time finding anything like this. So finally I thought, okay, how would you talk to a bully? Now, this would be like you as an adult, Georgine. Any any adult, if you will, um, you could say, you know, there's an old saying that goes something like this. Treat other people the same way you want them to treat you. Have you ever heard any words like this before? <laughs> yes. Some will say yes, some will say no. Okay, if it's you, then you, you're saying yes. What do you, what, tell me, Georgian, what do you think it means? Well, it means precisely what it says, treating other people the way I wish other people would treat me. Mm-hmm. So think back to the first time you yourself were belittled or harassed or or bullied, since a bully has always been bullied. That's one, that's one thing we can know. And if I just, how, how does it make you feel? To be bullied? Uh-huh, yes, to be bullied. Angry, small, intimidated? Hmm. So if you think of your life, how old were you? What happened? See, now you're getting the bully to talk because this did happen to them. So, and then you say, well, did you know that bullying eventually backfires? It makes everyone miserable, even bullies. People do feel intimidated by bullies, but they don't respect bullies. Do you want people to respect you? I've never heard of, heard of bullies say, no, I don't want to be respected. They do want respect. Do you want people to applaud your strength or to be appalled at your strength being used to hurt the weak? Do, do you want them to value you for your power to pull someone up or to vilify you for using your power to push someone down. Do you want others to admire you? Every bully wants to be admired. Do do you want others to think highly of you for protecting others or to think badly of you for picking on others? Do you want people to admire you for helping others or to disrespect you for hurting others? You know, people look everywhere for heroes. Heroes they can respect. Heroes they can admire. Instead of being a negative influence by hurting people, you can be the hero who helps others. You can help people and be the positive influence on others. You can actually be respected by both the weak and the strong, the weak and the strong. And then in that respect, you can be like Jesus. He was respected by both the strong and the weak. Jesus is the one who said, do to others what you would have them do to you. Why not do it his way? After all, he changed the world. Let's talk about bystanders. As you mentioned, they perhaps hold the most power in this scenario. What responsibility, if any, does the bystander have when they witness an incident in which someone is being bullied, and of course they're witnessing the bully? That's a great question because some bystanders will say, there's nothing I can do about this. And so you do have apathetic bystanders. Bystanders, they, they, they feel uh, no obligation to report bullying. Uh, they often want to steer clear. They don't want to become involved. Now, that's apathetic. They don't care. The passive bystanders uh, often fear, fear revenge if they were to report anything. Um, they, uh, they feel that they would lose their own personal safety 
And that's why they become passive. And unfortunately, sometimes they laugh and mock uh, the victims and therefore they're supporting the bullying that's going on because they feel they can't do anything else. But the protected bystander, that's what we're talking about. They stand up to the bully as soon as the bullying begins. They say, stop it, stop. And they go, stand by the one who's being bullied. Don't hurt so-and-so. Um, they immediately report if there is anything specifically to report any and all abuse. They take a stand against the bully by defending the victim. And they encourage bystanders, other bystanders, to take a stand also, to stand with them. And so they look for ways to actually get involved. And there are bully prevention programs, campaigns. Schools have them. The Bible even says, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Let's talk about um, the section of your book, Steps to Solution, for the person who is the object of bullying, uh, who is perhaps the object of the bystander who fails to do anything constructive. What can be done for the individual? Let's talk about children, for example, who um, is the the, uh, subject of bullying. What can be done? Mm -hmm. You need to be aware, where is this taking place? Um, it, It used to be that schools were not helpful. And I think today schools have become increasingly more and more helpful because mm-hmm. schools can actually be literally sued if there is a death. There are thousands of dollars that can go out to uh, the family when action has not been taken, when bullying has been reported. So one thing would be encouraging those in school to uh, educate the students uh, where faculty is enlisted there. You know, what, what, what I'm thinking about one teacher, uh, she had uh, an anti-bullying pledge, um, and it began with, we, the faculty, agree to join together to stamp out bullying, and they put it in the classrooms, and they signed their names, meaning the, the faculty, so they would see their teachers' names. And there could be a... Uh, specific bully blockers blockers club a bully blockers club and it's like we will never bully anyone these are points we will treat everyone with kindness and respect we will include those who are being left out we will help students who are being bullied we will report any bullying we know about and everybody in the class signs it so that they're now a part of doing something to make a difference at their school in their classes and when they see others who are being hurt, um, it doesn't feel good when you see somebody just continually being picked on. So they, what, what others can do is ensure a, a safe atmosphere where students who report bullying are confident that the bullying will be addressed and stopped and not ignored. Yeah, so that's why you would display the rules and, and the repercussions if we're talking about especially uh, for children. Creating an environment in which those who would be bullied know that they can find safety. Well, this is such a helpful a little book, Bullying, Bully No More. Uh, June, thank you so much for talking with us about it today, and I would encourage our listeners to avail themselves of this great resource if this is an issue, and it most likely is if you've got kids or you're an adult working in an environment with other people. Um, this is a great resource. Thanks for talking with us. My honor. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show on this bright and beautiful Tuesday evening. Portions of our program today are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency, about five minutes after the five o'clock hour. Well, the NC2A has, um, well, it's changed its position on paying athletes. I I was an athlete at the University of Oregon. I was not of the caliber that probably would have uh, garnered any kind of income generation, but we were good at the time. Well, the NC2A had taken a position after California passed its law uh, and a proposed measure that ultimately would lead to pay for play and turn college athletes into employees, as the NC2A originally said, has apparently softened its position on allowing ca- uh, college athletes to be paid. Uh, they provided few specifics, but they have made a, a shift in their policy. Well, there was rising pressure from lawmakers to permit college athletes to profit from their fame, as the universities themselves do. So the NC2A announced uh, today that it would consider rules changes that would allow college athletes the opportunity to benefit from the use of their name, their image and likeness in a manner consistent with the collegiate model. Now, what that means, again, unclear. Few specifics were made available. The statement and an accompanying NC2A question and answer explanation represented the organization's first acknowledgement of a willingness to discuss permitting individual athletes to trade on their fame. Uh, It contained few specifics on how doing that could be reconciled with the collegiate model that prohibits the kinds of benefits we're talking about and likely won't quell the organization's critics or pacify elected officials pushing for change. But they also restated their position to a state law in California that will permit college athletes there to sign sponsorship deals to charge for autographs and earn money. Uh, through their um, uh, other similar opportunities beginning in the year 2023. So there's time to make this happen. Well, the California law and other proposed measures ultimately would lead to pay for play and turn college athletes into employees, the NC2A said, uh, after a meeting of its leadership at Emory University in Atlanta today. This directly contradicts the mission of college sports within higher education, that student athletes are students first and choose to play a sport they love against other students while earning a degree. Well, the NC2A president, um, Mark Emmert, uh, he was unavailable for interview, but um, the policy statement uh, went on to say, as a national governing body, the NC2A is uniquely positioned to modify its rules to ensure fairness and a level playing field for student-athletes. He said in a news release, the board's actions today create a path to enhance opportunities for student-athletes while ensuring they compete against students and not professionals. So the line is being blurred somewhat, although without clarification. Well, in a phone interview hours before the announcement today, Tom McMillan, who's the chief executive, the uh, executive of the Lead One Association that represents 130 athletic directors and programs at the NC2A's top division, said the majority of his members support change that would allow some form of name, image and likeness payments for athletes. McMillan cautioned, however, that there are many unanswered questions and said it's unlikely change happens before 2021. This is not going to get uh, resolved overnight. This is going to go on for several years. At a meeting in late September, attended by dozens of athletic directors from across the country, McMillan said many expressed willingness to allow college athletes to make money similar to how Olympic athletes can, but they expressed concerns about uh, potential legal implications. The NC2A, its members' conferences have emerged largely victorious from federal antitrust lawsuits thanks to judicial rulings 
that have allowed the NC2A to prohibit payments that are not tethered to education. What's not clear at this point, McMillan went on to point out, is how to tie a new revenue opportunity for athletes to education so as not to make the NC2A or conferees vulnerable to more litigation that would uh, seek an open market for college athletes, essentially allowing schools to enter into cash bidding wars for top high school recruits. So it's uh, far from being resolved, but... The NCU2A uh, at least budging to some degree, suggesting, yeah, this uh, this might be something we're willing to consider. Well, in other news, a federal judge reversed his ruling on Monday and announced that the family of Kentucky teenager Nick Sandman may sue the Washington Post for liable over its coverage of the teenager. His family sued the Post back in February, writing that the publication allegedly targeted and bullied the teenager after an incident involving a Native American activist at the Lincoln Memorial in January. Judge William Bertelsman, he rejected the suit back in July, citing the First Amendment, but changed his mind on Monday and agreed to allow three of the 33 published statements to move forward. Well, Sandman attended a high school trip to Washington for the March for Life on the 18th of January with his classmates from Covington Catholic High School in Kentucky. And some of them, including the teenager, later wore Make America Great Again hats. Well, as they were chanting school cheers, Nathan Phillips, a Native American advocate, came toward the teenager while beating a drum. Phillips accused Sandman of blocking him on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, and the teenager denied he did so intently. Well, Bertelsman first said all 33 statements in the Post article that Sandman's family sued over were not defamatory. He didn't explain his reconsideration after deciding that three of the statements in the lawsuit could go forward. Suffice it to say that the court has given this matter careful review and concludes that justice requires that discovery be had regarding these statements and their context. Bertelsman, again, the judge wrote, the court will adhere to its previous rulings as they pertain to these statements, except for statements 10, 11 and 33, to the extent that these three statements state that the plaintiff blocked Nathan Phillips and would not allow him to retreat. The three statements from the Post's coverage involved references to Sandman allegedly blocking Phillips. Uh, The Post issued a lengthy editor's note on the 1st of March after the family filed the lawsuit. Well, the family first filed a legal complaint alleging that the uh, Post ignored basic journalistic standards because it wanted to advance its well-known and easily documented biased agenda against President Trump by impugning individuals perceived to be supporters of the president. Now, these are high school students who are wearing the garb, but certainly don't have the opportunity to vote. The Post denied the claim and has stood by its reporting of the incident. Lawsuits were also filed against CNN and NBC over their coverage of the story. Both outlets filed motions to dismiss the lawsuits. We look forward to engaging in full discovery to develop the factual record in this case, which we believe will ultimately lead to the Post being held accountable for its accusatory coverage of the teenager. The Sandman's attorney said, well, the Post didn't immediately respond for request, but uh, the suit moves forward on these three counts. And what was uh, once thought to be a dead story is now, well, resurrected or rather resuscitated might be a better way of putting it. Well, you haven't been imagining it. Network television has seen a marked increase in offensive conduct, content rather, conduct also fits, and the expansion of adult-themed content into shows rated appropriate for children to watch, according to the Parents Television Council. They confirmed that with a release of their latest report today on TV content ratings. It's titled A Decade of Deceit, How TV Content Ratings Have Failed Families. In other words, the rating suggests one thing, but the content reflects something quite different. The Parents 
Barnes Television uh, Council's research indicated that the networks are packing substantially more profanity and violence into youth-rated shows than they did a decade ago. But that increase in adult-themed content has not affected the age-based ratings the networks apply. So what was considered unacceptable a decade ago and reflected uh, by the rating, what was in the program has not adjusted to uh, reflect what's actually now being allowed in these programs. The TV rating system hasn't changed in the 22 years it has existed, and yet in only 10 years, the Parents Television Council has uh, found that the content on TV has changed dramatically for the worse. The language and violence given a child-friendly rating is shocking. Well, among their findings, programs rated TVPG contained an average of 28% more violence, 43.5% more profanity per episode in 2017-2018 than in 2007-2008. Now, these ratings are designed to give parents some way to determine the appropriateness of programming they will allow their children to view. Among the findings as well, profanity on PG-rated shows included, um, well, I won't even (laughs) say the words because they're inappropriate for radio, Uh, but they are entirely inappropriate for a younger audience. In fact, as I'm reading through them, I'm quite shocked. Anyway, violence on PG-rated shows included use of guns and bladed weapons, depictions of fighting, blood and death, and scenes of decapitation and dismemberment. The only form of violence unique to TV-14-rated programming was uh, depictions of torture. Programs rated TV-14 contained on average 84% more violence and 64% more profanity per episode. And there was over 150% more violence, 62% more profanity on programs, again, rated TV-14. The overall number of G-rated shows from 2017-2018 was almost identical to that of a decade earlier. Five fewer, some sweeps periods, uh, contain no G-rated programming at all. Well, despite a significant increase in violence and profanity, the TV rating system has remained resistant to change. But the Parents Television Council says rather than getting less accurate, the rating system has never been accurate at all. The reason is that Hollywood uh, wants to profit off of younger viewers. There's a financial incentive for Hollywood to incorrectly rate shows lower than what they should Major advertisers stay away from shows rated TVMA as corporate policy. So, according to the Parents Television Council, by underrating episodes, the V-chip will not um, screen uh, screen out these episodes, allowing children to watch them, thus delivering more viewers to advertisers. So, parents, beware about the ratings and what they actually reflect. You can find out more on their website for the Parents Television Council. 16 minutes after 5, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Three big wins for religious liberty indicate that the tide is turning, so says Fred Lucas. You can decide for yourself. Air Force Colonel Leland Bohannon, a combat veteran, was close to retirement when he entered an unexpected fight, one to preserve his two-decade military career. There always will be a pending opportunity for you to stand for what God has said in his word as a, the difference between where society is going and where God has always been become greater and greater. That's what the retired colonel said on the 11th of this month during a panel on religious freedom at the Values Voters Summit in Washington. Back in May of 2017, Bohannon's superiors tried to suspend him for not signing a certificate of appreciation for a same-sex spouse of a retiring service member under his command. At the time, Bohannon had his own superior, or rather supervisor, sign the certificate. He requested a formal religious 
exemption and consulted with both a command chaplain and staff judge advocate. A year later, April of the following year, 2018, the Air Force Review Board's agency determined that Bohannon had the constitutional right to exercise his religion and that he acted appropriately without discrimination. Joined by others on the stage that had similar experiences and victories, Bohannon warned those in the audience to be faithful regardless of the outcome. If cases were lost and our efforts had failed, would we be bitter? How does that impact our witness and our continued witness to our neighbors, to the American public, and really to the world, the retired colonel said. He went on to add that we can take some lessons from our brothers and sisters in China and take some lessons from our brothers and sisters in the Middle East who are suffering for uh, suffering much greater than we can even imagine. Here we live in a nation where things are succeeding and perhaps the tide is turning somewhat. That might not always be the case. Will we continue with a spirit of generosity and outreach or will we turn inward and become bitter just because we didn't get what we wanted? Well, other panelists spoke about their own victories for religious freedom against attempts to interfere by the federal or local governments. When the federal government essentially tried to close his uh, meatpacking plant in Michigan because he displayed an article with a Christian theme on a break room wall, Don Vanderboon said he was faced with a tough choice. That was part of the decision of whether to push back or not, the fear of loss, the fear of what's going to happen. Vanderboon, the owner of West Michigan Beef in Hudsonville, Michigan, said... At a certain point, my wife, we sat down and I said, are we prepared to lose everything? It seemed like pretty much a hopeless cause. In 2015, U.S. Department of Agriculture inspectors threatened to cease conducting inspection, inspections rather, of the plant, effectively putting Vanderboon out of business unless he removed the religious tract that made a scripturally based argument against same-sex marriage. The inspector cited an expanded agency definition of harassment of USDA employees who inspect sites. Under laws regulating meat, a plant must be open to USDA inspectors in order to operate legally. In 2017, under the new Trump administration, the Agriculture Department changed the policy to respect religious freedom. But Vanderboon said he didn't realize this when he entered a risky fray. We decided it was bigger than us, he said. It's something worth fighting for. People have fought and died for these freedoms. I've read so many stories and aspired uh, to them, and here it is. It's my turn, so we hardly lost a thing. The Lord... Uh, prospered our business through it all. The Arizona Supreme Court ruled recently that the city of Phoenix cannot use a local non-discrimination ordinance to force owners of an art studio to create wedding invitations that violate their religious beliefs. Uh, Joanna Duca and Brianna Kosky, owners of Brush and Nib Studio in Phoenix, brought the lawsuit. Freedom won in Arizona, Duca said of, uh, to the audience. We received messages from people who said they disagreed, maybe with our view of marriage, but said, you are fighting for my freedom also, and I stand with you. She added, I'm grateful for that. Well, the annual, annual Values Voters Summit held earlier this month at the Omni Shorehand Hotel in Washington was created in 2006 to help inform and mobilize Americans to, pervert, to preserve rather bedrock values of religious liberty, the sanctity of life, traditional marriage, limited government. Since its inception, the primary sponsor has been the Family Research Council Action, the lobbying arm of the Family Research Council. These are just a few of the cases, perhaps not... Uh, uh, as noted as some might um, that might have been brought up, but nonetheless, uh, some encouragement for those at the event. Well, Kirk Franklin has announced that he's going to boycott uh, TBN, uh, the Gospel Music Association, the Dove Awards over his concern over the lack of diversity. Well, gospel star Kirk Franklin announced that 
He's boycotting all three, TBN, the Gospel Music Association, Dove Awards, and any of the organization's affiliated events until they address issues of diversity. He charged in a Monday video statement on Instagram that TBN removed parts of his acceptance speech from his 2016 and 2019 appearance at Dove Awards shows, which advocated for racial justice and reconciliation. When he approached representatives from all of the organizations about the situation, he says he wasn't provided with a satisfactory response. I'm aware that the word boycott often has a negative connotation, and finally, it, uh, it does. But my goal will forever be reconciliation as well as accountability. It's important for those in charge to be informed. Not only did they edit my speech, they edited the African-American experience, he charged. I'm not asking those in the gospel community to follow my decision. No, this is my personal choice to take a stand and hold responsible those in positions of power to acknowledge the issues in our separate communities that have existed from colonialism to Jim Crow. I pray there will be a significant change from this hurtful experience. I look with anticipation for that day of healing, and I'm committed to contributing to that process. In the end, we will not remember the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Well, Franklin explained that the experience made him feel like quitting and left him heartbroken. Today, I am heartbroken. He went on to say that I even have to share this with you. In 2016, I was blessed to win an award for Best Gospel Artist at the Dove Awards. During that award speech, I felt the responsibility as a Christian and a man of color to address the civil unrest at that time that was plaguing our country with the killing of uh, Philando Castile and Walter Scott, just uh, to name a few, by white police officers. And at the same time, the horrific killings of five Dallas police officers by an African-American. I called upon the audience to join me in remembering that as Christians, when we say nothing, we say something. Well, after a standing ovation, we prayed, stood in unity for all the families affected by those tragedies. We all felt that moment that there was a shift in the climate of our separate worlds. Unfortunately, when the speech aired on the Christian network, TBN, that part of my speech was edited out. I made uh, my disappointment and frustration known to the Dove Awards Committee and to the Trinity Broadcast Network. I never heard from TBN, and the Dove Committee promised to rectify the mistake so that it wouldn't happen again, Franklin explained. At the recently held Dove Awards earlier this month, when Franklin won the Best Gospel Artist Award, he raised the killing of a 28-year-old black woman. And um, Tanya Jefferson, who was shot dead by a white police officer through her window while she was staying with her eight-year-old nephew. I am born and raised in Fort Worth, Texas, and we still live in Fort Worth, Texas. And this past weekend, a young 28-year-old woman, a young girl by the name of uh, Anatalia uh, Jefferson was shot and killed in the home uh, by a police officer. And I am asking that we send our prayers for her family and for uh, his and I'm asking that we send our prayers for the eight year old boy that saw the tragedy and we just lift them up. And I'm asking that you pray with us. Just pray grace and mercy over their lives in the name of Christ, our King. He noted in a clip his speech posted on YouTube. Well, he noted that when the awards show was aired on TBN, his speech was edited. In 2019, history repeated itself. He, uh, itself. he went on to say, I was humbled to win the same award, and during my speech, I brought attention to the murder of this young woman in her home. Um, during the airing of the awards on the same network, again, that part of my speech was edited out. So now, after a meeting with the Dove Awards Committee and representatives of TBN, I made the decision after prayer consultation with my team and my pastor, Tony Evans, to not attend any events affiliated 
with the Dove Awards or TBN. Now, the Christian Post uh, reached out to all three organizations without comment. Due to our broadcast window, we had to significantly edit the Televat cast rather to two hours, which aired on Sunday, the 20th. In light of this, we understand that many were disappointed because there were so many memorable moments and noteworthy portions of acceptance speeches, arguing that it was not a matter of content, it was simply a matter of time. We'll see where this goes with Kirk Franklin. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a new survey says that young people who have left the church no longer return as they get older. That was the expectations. Pastors have long banked on social science showing that young people who leave the church generally return when they're older. But recent analysis says that trend suggests it might be over. In his analysis of data from the General Social Survey of five-year windows in which individuals were born spanning 1965 to 84 and published by the Barna Uh, group, Ryan Burge. He's an assistant professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University and pastor of First Baptist Church in Mount Vernon, Illinois, shows that younger generations raised in the church aren't typically returning to church when compared with members of the baby boomer generation born in 45 to 64. In Burge's analysis of the boomer generation, four different five-year cohorts reflected the the trademark hump, as they call it, supported by traditional social science, when each birth cohort moves into a 34-45 age range. That's exactly what the life cycle effect would predict. People settle down, they have kids, they return to church. When he examined data for the younger generation, 65 to 69, 75 to 79, and 80 to 84, the data show a fading of the life cycle effect. While the hump is still there, In the uh, cohort measured from 65 to 69, there was a shift in the life cycle effect that began to emerge around 1970. That trend line is completely flat. Those people didn't return to church when they moved into their 30s. You can see the beginning of that hump among those born between 75 and 79. But in the next birth cohort, as they call it, the hump is actually inverted. That trademark return to church, which pastors and church leaders have relied on for decades, might be fading. For anyone concerned with church growth, Burge says, this should sound the alarm. Many pastors are standing at the pulpit on Sunday morning and seeing fewer and fewer of their former youth group members returning to the pews when they move into their 20s and early 30s. No church should assume that this crucial part of the population is going to return to active membership as their parents once did. The data is speaking a clear message. The assumptions that undergirded church growth from two decades ago no longer apply. If churches are sitting back and just waiting for all their young people to flood back in as they move into their 30s, they're likely to find a rather rude awakening. Inaction now could be creating a church that does not have a strong future. Just this month, a new study from the Pew Research Center noted that only 65% of Americans now identify as Christian, while those who identify as religiously unaffiliated swell to 26% of the population, the drop in the number of Americans identifying as Christian reflected a 12% decline when compared to the general population 10 years ago. That decline was visible across multiple demographics, but particularly among young adults. Religious nuns are growing faster among Democrats than Republicans, though their ranks are swelling in both partisan coalitions, Pew said. And although the religiously unaffiliated are on the rise among young people in most groups of older adults, their growth is most pronounced among young adults. 
research by the Public Religion Research Institute in 2016 on why Americans are leaving religion previously pointed to the increasing share of American adults who've been joining the ranks of the religiously unaffiliated and said it's being fed by an exodus of those who grew up with a religious identity. Younger Americans today are also more likely to be raised without a religious identity than seniors. Only 9% of Americans report being raised in a non-religious household. And while younger adults are more likely to report growing up without a religious identity than seniors, 13% versus 4% respectively, the vast majority of unaffiliated Americans formally identified with a particular religion, no religious group has benefited more from religion switching than the unaffiliated. Nearly one in five Americans, that's 19 percent, switched from their childhood religious identity to become unaffiliated as adults. And relatively few, three percent Americans who were raised unaffiliated are joining a religious tradition. This dynamic has resulted in a dramatic net gain, 16 percentage points for the religiously unaffiliated. A rather interesting um, uh, snapshot of where uh, we stand today. And then this was an interesting piece written by Samuel Smith, uh, Christian uh, Post, um, that makes the point that uh, American churchgoers are really good at one thing, but not very good at the other. One is the natural byproduct of fellowshipping together. The other is a command of Christ. Well, American churchgoers are good at relationships, but pretty bad at discipling. That's according to a recent poll, which may explain at least to some degree where the problem lies. At, um, most American churchgoers have no problem developing relationships at church, but they're less likely to use their time to help fellow Christians grow. Uh, this week, Lifeway released uh, data from a 2019 Discipleship Pathway Assessment Study, a project that seeks to identify traits within the Christian community. Um, and those who participated did so online between January 14th and 29th of this year. Respondents were asked whether or not they agree with the statement, I have developed significant relationships with people in church. A total of 78% of the respondents said that they strongly or somewhat agree with that statement, while only 8% said that they strongly disagree or neither agree or disagree. And although over three quarters of churchgoers surveyed agreed that they had developed significant relationships, only 47% said that they intentionally spend time with the other believers in order to help them grow in their faith. We have a great time socializing, but not necessarily nurturing one another in our faith. 34% said that they neither agree or disagree that they have spent that time with uh, to help other believers grow spiritually. There's a different element to relationships at church than the majority of churchgoers haven't prioritized, the survey points out. Uh, Believers show that they have love for God by investing in other believers, but that's not happening. The relationships, uh, uh, it just isn't just mutual interest, it's about uh, helping one another grow. So discipleship is far less a, an element, and this is a generalization, obviously, from a relatively small sample group, but nonetheless, it may be telling. When broken down by ethnic uh, ethnicities, Hispanics, 32%, are most likely to strongly agree that they spent intentional time to help build up uh, their fellow believers, African Americans at 17%, Caucasians at 17%, and so on. I always dislike these um, uh, distinctions according to our ethnic differences, given the fact that we aren't supposed to have them within the body of Christ. But nonetheless, for the purpose of the survey, I will at least make a um, note of them. Uh, but one wonders if perhaps if there was a greater emphasis on discipleship and then our fellowship and relationships with one another focused more on encouraging one another in the faith and going deeper, if that might help uh, in these areas uh, that uh, I've just mentioned a few moments ago.
And then there's this. The early church, much like the 21st century church, thrived amid secularism. And perhaps there's something we can learn from them in that regard. Christianity Today featured a a piece by Gerald Sitzer uh, recently in which he makes the point that we can learn a great deal from the early church about the challenges the church faces in the 21st century, although our lives and the, the details are so dramatically different. He points out that he attended seminary in the 70s. He had to take several classes in the history of Christianity, though in those days it was called church history. The professor taught the course largely as a history of Christian thought. They studied orthodoxy, heresy, and um, in the early Christian period, monastic and scholastic theology. In the medieval period, the Reformation controversies of the 16th and 17th century, the evangelical awakenings of the 18th century, the liberal theology of the 19th and 20th century, as well as uh, its major 20th century critics, Barth and Bonhoeffer. In general, they learned church history from a uh, from a Christendom perspective. Uh, questions of correct belief loomed largest, at least as uh, it was remembered. They studied uh, as a kind of history of the Christian family, which is our family. Well, in the beginning of the teaching career that grew out of that, uh, Mr. Sitzer says he uh, taught the history of Christianity in much the same way. His primary interest was the Reformation theology and the evangelical awakenings, though he never totally neglected the, to tell the larger story. And su- students seemed interested enough, at least for a while. But then students started to change and their interests shifted. They started to question the attention to doctrinal precision that emerged during the Reformation period. They wondered about the emotion of the um, evangelical awakenings. Doctrinal faith seemed too abstract and narrow, emotive faith too fragile and insecure. He was teaching a Christendom course, but the students were asking for something different. Uh, He discovered that they needed something different because they were and still are growing up in a world very different from the one that existed only a generation ago. So together, the professor and students found it in the the, um, history of early Christianity. They began to pepper the professor with questions. How did early Christians start and sustain a movement over such a long period of time, some 250 years before Christendom began to emerge? How did the church maintain a steady rate of growth under such difficult circumstances? How did Christian leaders make disciples without the religious benefits and privileges we take for granted. And how did this minority movement influence the larger culture, even though the vast majority of people living in the Roman Empire didn't assume Christianity was one true religion? Christian ethics were the best way to live, and Christian institutions were worthy of special privilege. Well, the success of the early church was certainly not inevitable. Christians could have accommodated to the culture to win recognition and approval, which would have, well, undermined the uniqueness of their belief system and way of life. Or Christians could have isolated themselves from the culture to hide and survive, which would have kept them from on the margins, safe to be sure, but also irrelevant. Instead, Christians engaged the culture without excessive compromise and remained separate from the culture without excessive isolation. Christians figured out how to be both faithful and winsome. They followed what was then known as the third way, a phrase that first appeared in the second century letter to a Roman official named Diogenes. What made the third way so successful and fruitful at the heart, it was the unique identity and mission of Jesus himself. Shaped ev- Jesus Christ shaped everything that followed in his wake. No one in the ancient world had ever encountered the likes of him before. Romans had no categories for him, and neither did the Jews. Not even his disciples could make sense of him until after the resurrection. He summoned his followers to a new way of life because he was the first and foremost the way to new life. 
In other words, it was his uniqueness that made the early Christian movement unique. You can find more on the article on the early church that thrived amid secularism at ChristianityToday.com, and I think it's worthy of reading given the challenges we face now. 46 minutes after 5 o'clock, we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Now, I don't know about you, but I can hardly believe that the month of October is nearly over. Before we know it, we'll be celebrating Thanksgiving and then Christmas will be upon us. Well, get ready for an earlier sunrise, afternoon commutes in the dark, and daylight saving time ends this Sunday. Again, I can't believe it. It ends this Sunday. We're all going to be plunged into outer darkness where there will be the gnashing of teeth. Okay, maybe that's a little dramatic. But anyway, daylight saving time ends on Sunday. Uh, This is the case even in Oregon and Washington State, each of which recently passed legislation to maintain daylight saving time year-round. Not really sure what I think about that, but before the Pacific Northwest can make the permanent switch, the federal government has to give the states waivers. And so there are a number of them in the lineup who want to make daylight saving time permanent. But nonetheless, the Oregon legislature also states that uh, California, um, uh, or I should say states like California, also uh, went in for the daylight saving time. Um, Before the law goes into effect, the federal government has to say yay or nay. So the truth is we will be plunged into outer darkness, and that's coming up Sunday morning, early, early Sunday morning. While the U.S. government hasn't made a decision on letting Oregon or Washington state choose their own temporal fate, there is a budding movement in Congress to follow the Northwest's lead with a federal law. Now, right now, only Hawaii and most of Arizona won't put their clocks back on Sunday. I'm thinking about spending, wintering in those places. Those two states rejected daylight saving time when it became standardized in the rest of the country more than 50 years ago. So now we'll have to wait and see what the feds have to say about uh, full time, all the time, day and night, year round daylight saving time. But for um, this week, Sunday, what is it, 2 a.m., daylight saving time comes to an end. Get your flashlights ready because if you're uh, working at all uh, during the day, you're going to need that in early evening as well. Hey, wanted to mention that tomorrow I'm looking forward to a conversation with Michael Barone. He's the author of How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. The book is published by Encounter, and this is the third time that we've attempted to engage in conversation. <laughs> the first time he was sick, the second time I was sick, this time we're both just hoping we can match up. At the day, same uh, day at the same time. Uh, so Michael Barone is planning to be with us in the first hour of tomorrow's program. Again, the book, How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. Speaking of, um, of time, you might recall a decade ago. Do you remember Balloon Boy? Well, his parents are now speaking out. It's been 10 years after what some say was a hoax. They say, no, it was just a misunderstanding. Uh, captivated the nation. I remember sitting in this studio watching images of this large balloon in which everyone thought Balloon Boy, as he's later known, was inside that balloon. Well, the father at the center of the Balloon Boy hoax reportedly is sticking to his story. A decade later, he insists he really did think his six-year-old son was floating away in the sky that October morning and a sequence of events that, well, captivated the nation's attention. Richard Heen who's now living in Florida with his wife and three children, recently claimed he's a victim of character assassination, and he's standing by his account of that incident. I've lost a lot of opportunities, he said. I've had people contact me about things I've invented, and um, the deal went south because they found out 
who I am, or rather who they think I am, he told the network ABC News in a recent interview, to commemorate, if you want to commemorate such a thing, the 10-year anniversary of the October 15th, 2009 media frenzy. You know, on a slow news day, it's not hard to create a media frenzy, and that day happened to be one where they were available. The things that get me in the media never tells my side of the story, he says. Well, Richard and Mayuma Heen, they pled guilty to various charges following the October 2009 balloon boy incident. The Heens reported in October that year that their six-year-old son, Falcon, had floated away, you know, Falcon floated away in a homemade UFO-shaped helium balloon, touching off a scramble of dozens of emergency responders to Colorado National Guard helicopters. Now, you might wonder what on earth would compel a mom and a dad to make up such a story. Did they really think their son was in the balloon? Well, the boy wasn't on the balloon and was later found at his home in Fort Collins, about 60 miles north of Denver. Authorities accused the Heens of staging a hoax to get publicity for a reality show they were trying to pitch. Well, Dad, Richard Heen, he ended up pleading guilty to a felony count of attempting to influence a public servant and served a 30-day jail term. His uh, wife, Mayuma Heen, um, pled guilty to filing a false report and served a 20-day jail term. Now, she says now that she confessed out of fear that her children would be taken away or that she might be deported. She said in a recent interview with uh, the network, um, then I won't see my husband or, you know, kids. I won't be able to see them. So that was her motivation, she says. Well, the boys... Um, Their three boys now work with their father fixing up homes in Florida. They formed a metal band called the Heen Boys, spelled with a Z. One of their music videos is titled Balloon Boy, No Hoax, and features footage purportedly showing the infamous balloon sailing through the skies of Colorado. Now, Bradford Heen says, however, we don't really want to associate ourselves with that, even though we have associated ourselves with that. He says, we just want to rock out. So, um... This marks the 10-year anniversary of that event that captured the attention of the entire nation, thinking that a poor, helpless six-year-old boy was floating heavenward on a balloon filled with helium that could at any time plunge to the earth at the boy's peril. Well, it was apparently a hoax, and you can decide which version of events you want to believe. Dad says, hey, we really did think he was in there. Although we really were also looking for a publicity for a reality television show we were trying to pitch. And the Heen boys now, 10 years later, perhaps not fully appreciating all that happened during that uh, event, have uh, started a metal band and have a song named after that perilous event. Oh, well. Well, once again, if you didn't have the opportunity to hear my conversation with June Hunt, you can always go to kpdq.com where the podcast is found of that conversation and, well, conversations from shows previously. So check that out at kpdq.com. And uh, you can look for The Georgine Rice Show, and you can find information about that there. I also want to remind you, Sunday, we'll be mentioning this throughout the next several days, Sunday is the day that daylight saving time comes to an end. It really is Saturday night for all intents and purposes. It's about 2 a.m. in the morning. So if you don't want to be the person that shows up, let's see, we're falling back. If you don't want to be the person who shows up early for church on Sunday, I think that's how it would go, Uh, make sure that you... um, make preparations to acknowledge that daylight saving time has come to an end once again, but it will uh, in the spring, 
be back with us again and we can all live in the light. But for now, that's not so much the case. All right. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering. Hope you'll join us tomorrow when Michael Barone will be my guest, How America's Political Parties Change and, well, How They Don't, the book published by Encounter. Oh, by the way, we're also going to talk with Mike Gonzalez on China's effort to control what Americans think. We'll talk about some of their efforts to censor what happens not just in the People's Republic of China, but elsewhere. And we'll talk about that with Mike Gonzalez on tomorrow's program as well. Hey, thanks for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Hope you'll join us here tomorrow and have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.